In the investing world, we hear the mantra to diversify. It's a pretty common way of avoiding risk. But in the same profession, you highlight that we're not diversified in one big aspect of it. Katrina and I, both of us have been one of the few women in the room in every context. And that did not seem to have changed much in those decades that we've known each other. We love our jobs and we have found that work-life balance, while it's not easy for any woman basically in corporate America, is really no worse and in some cases better than some of the more challenging career paths like corporate law and medicine that we have observed much better gender diversity in. Portfolio Management 101 is about having a diversified portfolio. So we were almost surprised that if we advocate for the benefits of having a diversified portfolio, why don't we have a diversified set of portfolio managers running those portfolios? People always think we manage money for the money, but actually we manage money because we know the good it does in terms of securing people and securing their future. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. My two guests today are Ellen Carr and Katrina Dudley. They are the authors of the book Undiversified, the big gender short in investment management. Ellen Carr has over two decades of experience as a high-yield bond portfolio manager, most recently at Barksdale Investment Management, a majority women-owned institutional fixed-income investment management firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Ellen has been an adjunct professor of finance at Columbia Business School since 2012. She's a frequent contributor to the Financial Times. She's a member of the Kellogg Financial Network Advisory Board. And she also manages a family foundation which awards college scholarships in rural communities. Ellen has an MBA from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University and received her BA from Harvard in 1994. Katrina, CFA, CAIA, is a Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager and Investment Strategist at Franklin Templeton Investments, one of the world's largest asset managers, where she co-manages the Franklin Mutual Global Discovery and Franklin Mutual European Funds. She has a passion for advocating for women in finance and business. Katrina Dudley earned an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business, a law degree and a commerce degree from Bonn University, and an Associate of Science degree in Computer Science from the University of the People. Today, we talk about Ellen and Katrina's childhood, upbringing, and career path. Their book, Undiversified, The Big Gender Short in Investment Management, the need and ways to include more women in the investment profession. Ellen and Katrina share their research and advice on how to create more opportunities for women from entry-level analyst role all the way to paths to promotion and retention later on. We discuss how women are more risk-aware, not necessarily risk-averse. 
Stay tuned until the end when we talk about how this challenge of being undiversified when it comes to gender can be the next opportunity for the investment management as a profession and an industry. Please help me welcome Ellen Carr and Katrina Dudley. Hello, dear listener. I have a new book out. It's a soft launch, and you are among the first to know about it. It's called Crisis Investing. It's a collection of 100 essays, 500 pages, that I wrote to our clients during the global COVID pandemic. I share our lessons from managing family fortunes through one of the most difficult periods in recent history. It's an intimate look behind the scenes, with a retrospective commentary that I added after. The economic and financial backdrop might feel unique to that time, but you'll see that the investment principles shared are timeless. The book includes kind words from Guy Speer, the author of The Education of a Value Investor, William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, Lauren Templeton, the author of Investing the Templeton Way, Christopher Mayer, the author of 100 Beggars, Gotham Bate, the author of The Joys of Compounding, James E. Hughes, the author of Complete Family Wealth, Brett Barrett, who's a co-founder and host of the Choose FI podcast, and John Seforek, the author of The Wealthy Gardener, Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. If you're enjoying the show, I think you'll enjoy the book. Head over to Amazon, look it up, Crisis Investing, Bogumil Baranowski, and enjoy a discounted price for both Kindle and paperback. Please review it, rate it, share it. Your support means the world to me. And now, on with the show. Ellen, Katrina, welcome to the show. I was really excited to have you on the show, so thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. I came across your book, Undiversified, the big gender short in investment management. It's a book published by Columbia University. And I found it really intriguing because it touches on a topic that's not discussed enough. And I have so many questions. But I'd like to start those conversations really from the beginning, if you indulge me. And I like to ask my guests about their childhood and upbringing and how they think that influenced their relationship with money and how that led to both of you to a career in investing. Ellen, why don't I start the conversation and then you finish with your experience? I grew up in a household where my father is a real asset investor. He was a real estate investor. And so my experience with investing was not stock market experience. I jokingly tell the story that I think my father has bought one stock in his entire life, and that was the opportunity that came with the telephone bill to purchase shares in Telstra, the Australian telecom operator, and that's his only foray into the stock market. But interestingly, when I was very young, I was kind of pursuing two very different careers. I was looking at business, and I was looking at being a violinist. And my father sat me down and had a fairly frank talk about which one I wanted to focus on. And I'm always one of those people who focuses on the downside. I think I've always done that. It's probably part of the reason I ended up where I am in my career. But I looked at the the probability of me being a successful violinist on the stage of Carnegie Hill, and I looked at the probability of me being a successful business person, and I chose the latter. So that was how I um, ended up pursuing career in finance. Katrina's story is not terribly dissimilar from mine. And we actually write a little bit about this in the book. My parents were real asset people as well. And to this day, even though my dad died a few years ago, we have a huge um, group of very inexpensive rental properties in rural Tennessee. My dad invested a lot of his savings over the decades into single family homes and also farmland. My decision to go into investment management, like Katrina, I was torn between two 
types of career paths. One was into the creative world of publishing, writing. I quickly figured out that that was not a particularly lucrative pursuit, even back in the 90s when I graduated from college. And so I then flipped around to investment management because I thought that it would be a great way to make money, frankly, and have been pleasantly surprised over and over again by how intellectually stimulating it is and how it really is quite creative, just in a very different way than I anticipated. In the investing world, we hear the mantra to diversify. It's a pretty common way of avoiding risk. But in the same profession, you highlight that we're not diversified in one big aspect of it. So I'm curious about the book, and I'm really curious how the book came about and why aren't we diversified? And I know it's a big topic and there are many more questions, but let's get started on this idea of why aren't we diversified and how this book came about. So the book came about precisely because we're not diversified. And Katrina and I had the experience over decades, and we've, we've known each other for, gosh, going on close to 30 years, I think. But both of us have been one of the few women in the room in every context. So whether it was in a pitch or in at an investment conference, there were seas of men and the Patagonia Brovests, and then there were the occasional woman sprinkled throughout. And that did not seem to have changed much in those decades that we've known each other. This was supplemented by my experience teaching as an adjunct at Columbia Business School. I teach courses that are fairly investing oriented. So I basically teach what I do for a living. I'm not really qualified to teach anything else. And I had noticed over the, I guess it's been 10 years now that I've taught at Columbia, that generally speaking, my student body demographics look pretty similar to the headline demographic that, that led us to write the book, which is that only 10% of portfolio managers in the U.S. are women. That's from a Morningstar study. Coincidentally, most of my classes had that kind of 10% female demographic, despite the fact that the student body at Columbia and business schools in general is inching toward parity. So there's something self-selecting about women when it comes time for them to choose career paths. And our head scratching about this topic really started from the position of strength that we feel that we have. We love our jobs and we have found that work-life balance, while it's not easy for any woman basically in corporate America, is really no worse and in some cases better than some of the more challenging career paths like corporate law and medicine that we have observed much better gender diversity in. So that was the genesis of the book. Katrina might want to add on to that. Yeah, I think that you've you highlighted you know, Portfolio Management 101 is about having a diversified portfolio. So we were almost surprised that if we advocate for the benefits of having a diversified portfolio, why don't we have a diversified set of portfolio managers running those portfolios? And I think that I had done a lot of work and done a lot of research prior to Ellen and I looking at writing the book and had been surprised because all of the research pointed to the benefits of having diversity in teams. They point to it in multiple different ways. Um, it's in better stock price returns. It's in better innovation. It's in better decision making. And I think that as we port that into investment management, we think that we talk about the fact that there are many parts of the investment management world that have not performed as they've promised. And therefore, we wonder whether or not this lack of diversity is a contributing factor 
And therefore, if you start to see more diversity in investment team, you're getting better investment decision making, which means better returns for our clients. And that's why we do this. We don't talk about why we do this. People always think we manage money for the money, but actually we manage money because we know the good it does in terms of securing people and securing their future. Can you talk more about the statistics? I think Ellen touched a little bit on it. But when I was reading your book, you were comparing the investment profession and other industries and how it has evolved and changed and how the other sectors have actually made progress. And can you talk more about the actual numbers? I thought it was really interesting and it showed the difference in how investment management has really fallen behind. So I just came up with a new one that actually <laughs> makes our industry look good. Okay. <laughs> Less than 1% of police chiefs in municipalities in the United States are women. So we're not quite as bad as that statistic. But yes, again, 10% of portfolio managers are women. 14% of investment analysts are women. So right there, that suggests what we call a promotion problem. So if women are not being promoted to analyst or sorry, to portfolio manager from the analyst ranks at the same rate as men are, then, you know, those numbers step down. 14% is not great, but it's better than 10%. So if you compare that to other industries, we mined as much data as we... So doctors, 37% of doctors are women. Now, unfortunately, that obscures the fact that the higher paying professions in the medical field, such as surge, tend to skew more male. But since we know that today more than half of the entering classes at medical school are female, that's likely to continue to change for the better over the next decade or so. 33% of lawyers are women. 63% of accountants or auditors are women, which is a very high number. And then if you go to the leadership ranks of these types of professions, and this is where we think that the best analog is to the portfolio manager role. We still inferior from a gender diversity perspective to other careers. 20% of law firm partners are women and 24% of federal judges are women. In accounting, 19% of partners in the U.S. accounting firms are women. And again, going back to the surgery analogy, in surgery, they've done a better job with diversifying from a gender perspective. They are 25% of surgeons are women. So we cast a very wide net to find good comps. The ones we came up with are engineering, which is a traditionally male-dominated industry. There's a study that found only 10, or sorry, 12% of engineering functions are held by women. And the only industry, other than the police chief one I just mentioned, we could find with less gender balance is real estate, commercial real estate, in which only 4% of senior investment roles are held by women. The last statistic I'll leave you with is that this is an industry near and dear to my heart because I dated a comedy TV writer for quite some time. And that's the industry I used to think of as the last glass ceiling industry. But 17% of comedy writers are women. And of course, now we have a female vice president and until recently had a female speaker of the house. So we feel like we've got quite a ways to go when it comes to comparing ourselves to other industries. Katrina, you mentioned the benefit in terms of investment results, which I found was really interesting. And it all comes from the idea of being more diversified, but also including more voices, right? If the voices are not in the room, these are the voices we can't hear. Can you talk more about it? I do want to address this. We don't think that women need to outperform men right. mm -hmm. in investment results to justify having more women in investment management. I just want to be really clear. And so we spent 
time during the book addressing that because we think that the benefits of having those diverse perspectives in the room is very important. The first aspect of having, however, diverse perspective is you don't need to pay attention to the minority opinion. You don't need to only go with that, but you need to hear it and you need to address it. And that comes down to this idea of you need to hear it. Because you can have diversity in the board. We have a boardroom where our meetings are held. We can have diversity, but if we don't have inclusion, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter that we have diversity. And in the sense that I talk about having diversity, we want those voices to feel that they can contribute and that they can be heard. And that's where the hippo comes in. So the highest paid person. And so you need to have that inclusion and that inclusion culture coming from the top down. And so I think when we talk about the benefits of diversity, we think that diversity is just the table stakes of having those various people in the room, but just having that diversity is not enough. You need to have the inclusion of those voices and those investment opinions. I like that. Then you mentioned there are ways to solve the problem, and you talk about the entry level, and Ellen mentioned it, but you have to start really from the beginning. So from the school level and women applying for those jobs and women being in the right courses and and studies, can you talk about that idea, how to start really from the beginning so that you have enough people in the pipeline, so to speak, that later on there are women at the analyst portfolio and higher levels within the company? How do we get started? I think the first thing that we need to do is actually within your own household. Your parents if they've got a son and a daughter, speak to those children differently about money. Mm -hmm. And so if you can just equalize that, so you're talking to them the same, I think we're starting really early, really young, but you're already starting to debunk a myth and a perception that women have that they're not they can't, they're not good with money. And obviously in finance, that's what we're dealing with. So I think it starts as early as that. It can continue. We've seen obviously a drop in girls' participation in STEM as early as high school. And there are a number of programs. We actually have donated all the proceeds from this book to an organization called Rock the Street, Wall Street, which goes into schools to, tr- to teach financial literacy, but at the balance sheet level. So how to manage your balance sheet, not just in terms of how to manage your budget. And I think that's really important as we start building this pipeline. Finally, we had the privilege, I'm going to talk about the undergraduate and then let Ellen talk about the MBA experience, because I think it's really, they're two different experiences. But as we talk about the undergraduate experience, a lot of women at the undergraduate level were not applying for roles in finance because they didn't have female role models. And as we say, you can't be what you can't see. And so we need to have more senior female leaders in finance going into their colleges and their alma maters and talk to the entire class and showing that women can succeed in finance. And it just takes that one presentation. And we heard time and time again where that was the thing that changed someone's perception. Finally, I have to say this, and Ellen laughs because I say it all the time. This is the one job where you have to do the job before we give you the job. And what do I mean by that? We make people do stock pitches before we actually give them a job as an investment analyst. And we need to take that out. We need to just understand that those Excel and modeling skills are teachable skills, and we should hire for the characteristics that make you a great investor. 
And those characteristics are something that anyone, male or female, can have, which is intellectual curiosity and wanting to understand what's going on at companies, wanting to converse with top management to understand their business strategy. And so if we hire for those skills and those talents, I think we'll do a, we'll, we'll make a big dent in solving this gender imbalance. And then Ellen, if I could shift over to you and because you really have the MBA experience. Yeah. And I would just say what one other thing going back to the earlier stages. And I think that this problem is pervasive throughout all points in the in the on-ramp to investment management. But we have a severe image problem in our industry. I think the events of this week are not really helping that. If you think about some of the bank headlines that are in the news, but lots of people conflate our industry with greed, with rampant bad aspects of capitalism. This is aided and abetted by some of the portrayals that you see in the media. So everything from the big short to the Wolf of Wall Street, which, by the way, was about the sell side, not the buy side. These tend to (laughs) meant really bad images of not just the industry, but also the type of people that select into the industry. If you were a woman and your only experience of investment management was watching the research that takes place in strip clubs in the big short, it's not a big leap to say, I'm going to look elsewhere. If I'm at Columbia Business School, you know what? I'm going to look into management consulting. I'm going to look into investment banking, which, by the way, has much better female penetration that other than investment management does, because that seems like an easier industry for me to understand how I can progress and get ahead. Going back to the uh, the MBA level, Katrina mentioned this legendary stock pitch that you have to develop in order to apply for and get a job in investment management. So the cadence of the recruiting cycle, once you enter one of the top 10 business schools to position yourself for investment management, you basically have to know day one that you are interested in that career path. And that, by the way, is at the same time as in your first year, you're taking what could be some of your first finance class, your first encounters with macroeconomics, other types of concepts that are really challenging and the reason that you pay basically $100,000 to go to business school. So if you don't have the same facility with the terminology, the lingo, the types of career paths that are even available in investment management, and you find yourself sitting next to the guy who worked in banking at Goldman Sachs for five years before he went to business school, and he speaks the language fluently, and he seems like he just knows what he's doing, and he's going to walk into the interview and give the impassioned stock pitch that, by the way, incorporate some anecdote about how he's been investing since he was 10 years old and told his dad that he wanted to buy Mattel stock because he loved Hot Wheels. There's just all these sort of embedded demographic perspective wrapped up in the person who tends to do well and to hit the ground running at Columbia Business School and say, I want to get a job in investment management that puts women at a structural disadvantage pretty much from day one. I wrote so many notes just listening to you. So many good points. So first of all, the image, I couldn't agree more. And I notice how when people ask me what I do, and I'm a stock investor, we invest money for families, they have an image of Wall Street, the original movie. And they ask me, that's how I work with all those screens and screaming on the phone. And that's not what I do. My work is more like work of a monk. Somebody said it it reminds them of the work of a monk. You sit down, you read, you learn about companies. So I think the image is a challenge. It was an interesting point about the pitches 
there's this assumption that people are expected to come with an existing knowledge of investing in something that they've been doing since they were little. But you made a good point that it's something that can be taught. Even the complex modeling and all those things, they can be taught and anybody can learn. And we work with a lot of interns over summer and I've had interns for almost two decades and I've seen both men and women pick up very quickly the basics. So you don't really have to come with all that existing knowledge. And I have fun with that moment when I can see that somebody got really intrigued by what investing is about and it just clicks and it's something that can definitely be shown. And, and I really enjoy to see that moment when they get it. And there's no looking back. I'm curious about the retention. So we were talking about younger people joining the profession. And then you mentioned in the book also the retention challenge. So making sure that women stay and get promoted, but are represented at higher ranks of companies. Can you talk about that? How do we go about helping with the retention? You want to start with that, Katrina? We will pause it this way. In terms of the retention issue, obviously, there's so much research that's been published on what we call the broken rung, which is just at the first level of promotion where women are already disadvantaged. And you see it in the delayed, it takes longer. Salesforce was the first company to really identify this and put numbers around it. But it takes significantly longer for women to get the same promotion that their male counterparts do. The reason for this is that men promoted based on potential, women are promoted based on performance. So we need to somehow adjust for that. The second thing that we found is that there's somewhat of a confusion at top management levels is that when men are offered a promotion, they go, of course, I'll take it straight in. And women ask questions. And it's not because we're not curious and we're not excited. We're probably actually more curious, but we just want to know more. And I think that people associate that question asking with lack of interest. So we need to change that perception in order to encourage more women. I think there are two things that are really easy and tangible to do on the promotion side. And if women feel that they're being promoted fairly and on the same basis as their male counterparts, we're going to retain more women in the field and we're going to have more women that are available to be promoted into those senior ranks. And we talk always about this flywheel, but the more women you have in the senior ranks, the more visible women there will be in finance, which will then feed into this cycle of being able to recruit more women in and actually really help us get off the kind of flywheel that they're stuck on at the moment. Ellen, do you have some thoughts you want to add? I think Katrina summed it up. We talk in the book when we get to the section on what you're inside the lion's den, so to speak, of the investment management industry. We talk about equalizing the three P's and Katrina touched on those. So those are pay, performance and promotion. And we have reams and reams of data. And look, that's one of the best things, the aha moments that we had writing this book was we don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel to come up with some very tangible, actionable solutions for our industry. There is a ton of research that's been done. We have lots of studies cited in the book. We didn't do any of our own. We did some primary research with the undergraduate students and with Columbia Business Student Investment Management Club. But when it comes to people already in the pipeline of the investment management industry, Lots of other industries can really show us the way when it comes to solutions for equalizing pay, promotion, and performance evaluation. And those are going to be the primary drivers of what makes a woman stay in a job versus step off the track when she decides that her career is less valuable than her partner's once she has children. Or 
step out of the industry altogether and look for what she feels is a kinder, gentler industry that's really going to reward her based on her performance as opposed to these intangible facts, which unfortunately permeate investment management when it comes to who's rewarded, who gets the highest bonus, who gets that promotion from analyst to per- portfolio manager. I, sorry, I could talk about this all day, obviously. But what, <laughs> one of the striking things about our industry is that it talks about itself as a meritocracy because we know exactly how our portfolios perform every single day. I can go look up my numbers every single day and say, I beat my index. I did not beat my index. And yet at the same time, we know fundamentally that cannot be the case because most active managers fail to beat their indices net of fees. Now, of course, that's not true in fixed income where I live, but by and large, we could say that active management has has faced a number of challenges in overcoming that. So it's a little bit cheeky to talk about it as a meritocracy when, in fact, we've got lots of data to, to show us that, in fact, that's not the case. So then you turn around and say, if it's not a meritocracy, then who's responsible for all of these promotions into the portfolio management role? Makes sense. I'm curious about the point that you make in the book about risk. And risk is a big part of many investment conversations. And men and women look at risk differently. And I like the way you presented it, that women are not necessarily more risk averse, but they're risk aware. Can you talk about it? I found it really intriguing and interesting. And and I'll add more after you share your thoughts. We hear this both in our industry and I, I hear it from my fellow adjuncts at Columbia as well when they talk about the ways that women pitch their ideas in class versus men. And we think that this risk perception hurts women in two different ways in investment management. The first way is on the investing side, right? So there is this mythology built around the idea of, particularly in the equity market and also in the distressed debt market, where sometimes I end up without meaning to, that you really have to be a swing for the fences, high risk personality person to succeed in this business. But we know that's actually not true. And happily, risk reward has started to make its way into lots of discussions about compensation, about beating benchmark. Do you beat your benchmark for three years straight and then every fourth year you blow up spectacularly? I think a lot of investment management firms are taking a closer look at that. I know that my alma mater has done that and making sure that they're really calibrating the risk. But if women are perceived not to be risk takers at the investing level, then that means they're going to struggle promoted from analyst to portfolio manager because people think she's good at analyzing our companies. She can really put her head down and be a worker bee. But when it comes to the type of personality we think will be successful as an investment manager, she's going to fail because she doesn't have the same risk appetite that a comparable man would have. Then on the career side, we find that women risk take, it goes back to what Katrina said before. So when you're offered a promotion, if you're a woman, you might ask for more information as opposed to if you're the man who knows that he can do the job, even though he's only got 60% of the credentials, as the studies show, then you're just going to raise your hand immediately and say yes. The reason this is particularly damning in investment management is that the career path from analyst to portfolio manager is almost a self-promotional path. So you have to tell your boss, I would be good at this job, despite the fact that I've never done this job, despite the fact that it is actually 
fundamentally a pretty different job than being an analyst where you're responsible for a small group of companies. You have to really make the case for yourself to be promoted into this role. And that's really different than, let's go back to the legal field as an analog. If you want to be a partner at a law, it's pretty clear what you have to do to get that promotion. You have a certain number of hours, you have a certain number of clients that you bring in. But with portfolio management, it's not at all clear what makes a good portfolio manager and how to make that transition from analyst to portfolio manager. So rather than take that career risk, women might just resort to doing what they know they're good at and where there's no career risk and just continuing down the analyst path. Katrina, do you have some thoughts? I think Ellen really comprehensively addressed this idea of the risk-aware versus mm-hmm. risk-adverse. And I think one one area that the studies have continued to show is that, for example, in their own personal accounts, women don't churn their portfolio, for example, as often as men. And so women are just, they just have certain different investing characteristics. In the investment pitches, women will actually talk about the downside risks of the investment. Their male counterparts often don't. We talk about the number of times I've been in a room and heard the guy go, it's a 10-bagger, and that's the <laughs> investment pitch, versus women are just coming in more balanced. And often we interpret that focus on risk as being that they're risk adverse, whereas they're actually, as Ellen said, making us as portfolio managers aware of what could work with the name, but also what could not work. And I think that others, as a PM, that downside analysis is as important as the upside. It makes me think of our own experience. So we manage money for families, and in many cases, it's inherited wealth. But we also have women clients that sold businesses and were very successful in their own career. So first-generation wealth. And I don't have statistics, but anecdotally, I can tell that on average, women seem to be much better with sudden wealth and inherited wealth. And it's the perception of risk. You mentioned churn in personal accounts. I think it's a lot of different things that add up. But somehow they take the time to make the decisions. And by definition, there are fewer mistakes if you're not in a rush. But I I haven't seen studies or research that proves it statistically. It's just anecdotally. I don't know if you have any thoughts. I know you're working on another project that might have more to add on the topic. I don't know if you want to share anything. I think we acknowledge the changing faces of wealth that you're talking about. The fact Mm -hmm. that you're be it the Latino community, more women are not only inheriting money, they're self-making money or they're getting it through divorce. So women actually do have more money to invest. Generally speaking, as we look at the financial advisory industry, it also skews highly male. And as I say, it's products designed by men for men. Mm -hmm. And so there's often not an alignment and we think that is something that will change. The other aspect of this is that you're getting a female client originally in the door, you're speaking to that client and having those conversations. A lot of financial advisors have had the relationships with the husband in particular in a traditional marriage situation. And when that that male dies, over 70% of women are talking with their feet and they're leaving their advisors to go and find that person who can and who listens to and will invest according to their needs and preferences. So I do think that you've identified a trend and you're right. We are continuing to investigate that. And I think it's a very interesting topic. You mentioned the importance of mentorship, sponsors, basically help down the road throughout career. Can you talk about those roles and how that can help women be more represented or participate more? 
I'm curious, and you mentioned if it's men or women mentoring men or women, different stories. If you can talk about that, I'm curious. Maybe, Ellen, I'll start with the definition just so that we're all clear, and then we can share some of our stories, both of us. I just want to be clear. A mentor is someone who talks about you when you're in the room, and a sponsor is someone who talks about you when you're not in the room. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, women are over-mentored and sponsored. So they don't have enough advocates for them when they're not in the room. And that's part of the reason you do see these promotion delays. It is not having those sponsorship relationships that will help advocate for them when they're not. I've had mentors and sponsors throughout my career that have helped me get to where I am. And I think those relationships have been very important. When I talk to people and women about developing, however, their mentorship network, I do say that the benefits that we talk about in diversity and investment teams also applies to your mentorship network. So you don't want to have a network of mentors and you don't want to have a network of sponsors that look the same and are all in the same division, for example, all went to school with you. You want to have diversity and you're going to need to draw on those diverse opinions either in when you need mentorship, you'll be able to pull in different people into the discussion who have different ways of looking or they may have confronted the issue. And on the sponsorship side, you really want to be able to show you have a diverse range of sponsors, not just within division, but without within outside of your division. Helen, do you have some thoughts? I have another question. No, I think Katrina covered it. Great. I'm curious about your advice for men at investment firms or in general in the industry. What can they do to help women be more represented? What's their role? I think one of the really great things about writing this book was the universal puzzlement that we found in the men we spoke with. Obviously, we work with mostly men. Most of my mentors and virtually all of my sponsors, not all of them, but most of my mentors and most of my sponsors have been men over the decades. And statistically, that just is the case. Men are just as puzzled as we are by this phenomenon. By and large, the men we work with are not the sort of that's the offenders that you would think of who might put women off from joining an industry. Men are motivated by the bottom line. And if results are good because of increased diversity, as Katrina touched on at the beginning of this conversation, then they will also embrace in increasing diversity in the ranks of portfolio managers and analysts. We talk in the book about ways that men can become allies to women. In some cases, that just involves listening, making sure that, especially if you are a man of power sitting at the table, you calibrate people's investment recommendations for their personalities. So one analyst might have a very confident, aggressive approach to, as Katrina mentioned, recommending a 10-bagger stock. A woman might have a more nuanced, calibrated recommendation, but be equally good, perhaps better than her male counterpart. And that doesn't have anything to do with the way in which she expresses her conviction. It just has to do with her perspective on risk reward. So really making sure as a man that you take account of all the voices in the room. Also making sure that you don't intentionally or inadvertently engage in activities outside of the office that tend to skew male. So whether that be going to the cigar bar after work and drinking brandy and smoking cigars, that does tend to skew somewhat male. The golfing, the sports metaphors, there are lots of ways in which networking opportunities outside the office 
could be equalized so that not just women, but people who don't feel like they fit into that sort of rich white demographic can really participate in and get the chance to sit next to a very senior portfolio manager and talk to him personally about what you know his life is like. And also, most of them love to talk about their work. And just sitting next to somebody who has been in this business for 30 years and still lives and breathes his portfolios every day, that's a big opportunity that really should be equalized for every new analyst who starts it. That makes sense. I was immediately thinking about remote work and work from home, something that has changed how we work the last few years. And I'm curious if that has influenced anything here, sped things up or just reorganized things. And I've heard just stories that people's promotions that were moved around just because the experience with them is different. They Just the work is seen, not the person is seen. And all those little stories that show that work from home might have some sort of an impact. And it's across ages, but it's across genders and that it can make a difference. I'm curious about your thoughts if work from home has helped in some way. Let me jump on the glass half full perspective and Ellen may be able to give us some of the counterpoints. I think that when we all had to suddenly go and work from home, what did happen is the amount of housework that women do became much more visible. I do think obviously some of the additional burden for education and that did get shifted to women and disproportionately so. It was their conference call, for example, that could get shifted, not the men's. But I do think that there was a lot more visibility in the work that goes on. And I think that was positive. That was highlighted by a study that came out of Rutgers that men actually you know, increased the amount of housework or the percentage of men doing more than five hours a week of housework increased. And I think that was positive. I also think is that what we saw is job satisfaction went up with work from home. And I think that went up for both men and for um Ellen, if you want to go into the negatives, because I don't think it was all rosy, the conclusions that we've seen from work from home. Yeah, Katrina and I like to joke about this. I'm a fixed income person, so the glass is always half empty. And as Katrina likes to say, it's sprung a leak because I do high yield and sometimes distressed inadvertently. I'm just going to say that over and over again on this. So I think that work from home is definitely a work in progress. And at this point in time, I think the jury is still out on whether this is going to be positive or negative for women in general. My concern is that it is going to be negative because when companies offer the option of either remote work or hybrid work, it is disproportionately taken up by women because they do tend to bear more of the familial responsibilities. And that's not just children, of course. That's also aging parents. That can take a lot of different forms. And it seems, and I think we've seen some examples and some media coverage of this already, we're sort of developing into this two-tier system. Can you have two-tier? I don't know. Perhaps there's a third one we don't know about yet, in which women select, self-select out of the office environment and are highly productive because there are studies that say that productivity increases. But the problem is all of those studies that measure productivity are not measuring the intangible productivity, so to speak, of networking opportunities. And again, that goes back to what we were just talking about with respect to what men can do to help and also how women can position themselves better. One of my favorite quotes from the book is from a woman who actually just went to run TCW, one of the largest fixed income firms, Katie Koch. 
I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Anyway, she said women chronically underinvest in networking. And that really stuck with me because when I think about lots of women I've worked with over the decades, it is absolutely the case that women tend to think that if they just put their heads down and do a good job, they will be recognized for their work. And unfortunately, this industry, as in many industries, is not one in which you will get ahead if that's all you do. One of my other favorite quotes from the book was, women network with people who they want to be bridesmaids at their wedding. Men network with people who they think is going to get them their next job. So coming back to the remote work concept, if networking, if we accept that networking is incredibly important and that remote simply makes that harder to achieve, I think that you're setting up for, again, a system in which women self-select into remote working roles. They get passed over for the after work opportunities, the socializing, the networking, and ultimately they get passed over for promotions for that same reason. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we still have to learn about remote work. And I think the COVID experience was very rushed. And when we go back and evaluate what happened, I think a lot of it might have been just pandemic style work from home. <laughs> I think we're yet to see how it can look in a different environment, but you raised some really interesting points. I remember those stories of some senior partners that would talk about their mentors from the past who got jobs on Wall Street in 1920s or 1930s. I got to hear those stories and they would tell me that you would get a job by going to the top of the building and go floor by floor all the way down until somebody hired you. And if nobody wanted you, then they would give you a job in the mail room and then you would wait, work your way up. Obviously, that's not how you get a job these days. But I think certain things do change, right? Technology changes things and you don't go for the building floor after floor to get a job. And I'm sure that remote work will change some things. And I'm still hopeful that the outcome is more positive than negative, but we're yet to see. You mentioned a concept of a token female at firms or parts of different senior groups. Can you talk about it? When there's just one woman, you would think that, oh, some voices are heard, but then there are other things that you have to consider when it's it's only one woman part of a senior team. Can you talk about that? I think some of the research that we found was that there is this kind of magic, this like level of around, and at 30%, what is called a salient minority goes from being a salient minority to acknowledged or a heard voice in the room. And so if you only have one female in a room with nine other men, the benefits of that diversity will not come through. Part of the reason is that they don't feel that they are heard when they're spoken. They may, some women may be looking to, to, to garner support from other minorities, not just female minorities, but other minorities in the room and may not feel comfortable. The other thing is that there is some myth that there's only one seat at the table. And so we're going to fight over it. And for some reason, people like the idea that we're going to fight. And our, our perception on that and our response is that, look, I'm the value person as well. I will say, just pull another seat up to the table. A lot of people will say, make the table bigger. That's just very expensive. I think of the carpentry work and everything to do that. And jokes aside, the fact is it's really easy to do and it's really easy to implement and it makes so much of a difference. So if you are the only female sitting around the boardroom table and you see a junior female or a middle, your mid-career female that takes one of those side chairs, pull up, make them pull their table, their seat up to the table so that they know that they have a seat and that their voices are welcome and they're heard. 
So that's how we think about this token female argument. And Ellen, I just wanted to open it up to you for some other insight. Yeah, I think we found a very dismaying study when we embarked on our work that showed that when you add a diverse person to a homogenous team, and so whether that person is female in a group of men or diverse in some other way, the productivity of the team goes down initially. And the reason for that is twofold. First, because there's this new entrant who makes other people uncomfortable because it's a different demographic and it takes a while to incorporate that. And the second reason is because this new entrant doesn't really feel comfortable speaking all the truths she has because she is very aware of her gender relative to the rest of the team. And so to go back to the point that Katrina made, this 30% level of when a minority ceases being what's called a salient minority and is really viewed as the token minority and transforms into a group with a voice and people who are who feel free to speak as individuals as opposed to representatives of whatever demographic differential they represent that's that communication really takes hold and the diverse like diversification of ideas within the group can really be made to come to life and to add value to portfolios you write about not being the loudest voice in the room and from my experience in investment research and management, I was always curious about whoever was in the room that I knew had questions but didn't speak up, and I would always address that. I was always curious about the ideas, voices, perspectives that are not being brought up. And you mentioned in the book about stretching the opportunities and promotions to those that are not the loudest voice in the room. How do we go about this to make it a more common practice? Yeah, I saw this over and over again in, in my early years as an analyst. And for better or for worse, I often was the loudest voice in the room. So very un unwoman-like, I guess. But I think this is actually an area where technology can be our friend. So I've heard that a lot of the investment management firms are experimenting with different types of technologies for their investment calls. For example, the way that an investment call might be structured is there's a group of portfolio managers and analysts sitting around a table. And whereas in the past, somebody got unlimited time, depending on the depth of their conviction, and could really hijack a meeting so that they could present their investment thesis on this opportunity that they thought was great. Now there's more calibration, making sure that there's equal time given for equally weighted ideas in the portfolio, making sure that questions get fleshed out and answered from all different participants in the meeting, not just from the ones that raise their hand the first or speak the loudest, ask the most follow-up questions. So I do think that there's some technological advances that can really keep track of time and can keep loudest voices from dominating the room and from really sucking all the oxygen out. Katrina, you're you have some thoughts? Oh, I completely <laughs> agree with Alan, which is why I was smiling and nodding. Look, I think that certain things, though, what Ellen is talking about are practices that everyone should be focused on to being a good analyst in terms of presenting an investment pitch that is clear, that is crisp, that has three bullet points to it versus the kind of, blah, here's everything I know. And that's one of the skills you need to get good at as an analyst that then ports over into your portfolio management special specialization because we talk about as an analyst you need to see each of the individual trees but as a pm you need to be able to see the forest 
And so I think that you've got this environment where your weekend as portfolio managers teach the analysts how to be focused, how to be better presenters. And that actually has lifelong implications. It makes your meetings more efficient. It also has this other goal, as Ellen said, of making it much easier for women to have their investment pitches heard if they're giving equal airtime as well. Yeah. And actually, I want to mention one other thing because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. There's some perhaps unintentional biases that go along with industry coverage. So we look and study of this was a study done of the analysts who asked calls on or sorry, who asked questions on earnings calls. So that was the data set that was mined. But it found that technology skewed heavily male in terms of the demographics of the analysts who covered it versus, say, retail, which skewed heavily female. And so when you go back to that concept of the loudest voice in the room, sometimes it's not just your fault that you're the loudest voice in the room. It's because you cover, let's say, the tech sector and everybody wants to talk about the tech sector because it's so exciting. It's got all these growth opportunities. It, de- it is the home of the 10-bagger. And then when you turn to the woman who covers, let's say, the utilities sector, we know that utilities belong in everyone's portfolio, right? But they're boring. And so the inadvertent skew towards men when it comes to the growthier, higher risk, unfunded business model, that can also lead to unintentional biases in investment calls It's simply because of the nature of the content. It made me think of the first pitch I gave right out of school. I was sitting in a room and I was half the age of anybody in the room. And it dawned on me in that moment that I was the only one not born in the United States. Here I was pitching a stock that everybody knew from childhood because they've used products as kids. And here I am, a total outsider when you think about it, pitching an idea to them that they've known much longer than I have. So I was shaking. But you're talking about what we want in the investment room. We We want that diversity. And you're talking about the diversity from all the angles that we talk about. Ellen and I specifically address gender diversity because it is so lacking in the investment management industry. And We thought layering on other types of diversity would just dilute the message. But let's be honest, you want age diversity in a room, so you don't want everyone who's 60, but the same reason you don't want everyone who's 25, you want that spectrum of age diversity. You want ethnic diversity, educational diversity. You don't want everyone who went to Princeton, or in our case, sorry, Ellen, but Columbia, or to NYU. You don't want a room of people who were all schooled in the same way of thought, because then you're going to have all the downside that is that lack of diversity. So I really do applaud the fact, and you were lucky that you had confidence to be that the outsider in that room, and hopefully they've added additional elements of diversity since you departed. Yeah, I think a lot has changed. You make a big point about the culture of the company. And you want it to be more balanced and fair. And I know we touched on it, but can we talk about that? What kind of guidance would you have for investment firms to have a better culture? Culture is something that is very difficult to quantify, to metric, to measure, and to change. I think culture needs to come from the top and constantly be reinforced and progress down an organization. I think that the cultural changes that we specifically highlight are the idea of promoting not just diversity, but promoting inclusion. I think that we also promote the idea of transparency. So when Ellen talked about the three Ps and analyzing the data, she talks about the transparency. And then finally, I think in terms of 
we we talk about things such as the fairness and the fairness of airtime and the fairness of coverage and the fairness of even simple things as who who are do, who's doing the traditional housekeeping roles in the office and making sure that those are being equally allocated. So that's what we we talk about. Ellen, do you have some more points to add? No, I think I would just go back to the comment about data. So Katrina's, you absolutely cannot quantify culture. Having said that, you can quantify a number of aspects of the way that your business works or your company works that might lead you to conclusions about culture. We joke that we are like the the children of the cobbler who have no shoes because we're really good at data analysis. That's what we do for a living. We analyze companies as analysts. We analyze our portfolios as portfolio managers. But then when you turn around and look at the way that investment management firms turn the lens inward on themselves, they're typically lacking. It's like the inmates running the asylum. We think that just getting smarter about the data that you track and then having some actionable strategies when you discover things in your data that surprise you, like the fact that it takes women, you know, what Salesforce found, it takes women 36 months to get the same promotion that it takes a man to get in 24 months. Just opening your eyes to that type of data is going to lead to some changes that should then lead to changes in culture. And by the way, I'm sorry I mentioned Salesforce because I think they're persona not grata right now, but for a while they were a great. The last question I have for you that I ask all my guests is your definition of success. And whether it's a professional or personal, I'm just curious, how do you define your success? And how do you know you're on the right track? Is it a journey? Is it a destination? I'm always curious. Ellen, you want to go first? I'm smiling because (laughs) lately my definition of success is fourth quartile performance in triathlons. So this is my my new love. I am the worst swimmer on earth and only modestly better when it comes to biking and running. Look, I think success is about feeling in a corp in a sort of business or professional setting. It's really being able to feel engaged and empowered every day. What we do, even though I've been in the high yield market now for many decades, and the mark and the composition of the companies who come to our market changes every few years. And that's enough to keep it interesting and exciting and new. And I feel very fortunate that I'm not still looking at the same group of 30 companies that I started with in 1999 when I went into this business. Market evolving is one of the reasons that I personally love this industry. I think it's more dynamic than other industries where you're mired in the same practices and procedures that you've had for the decades that you've been in the business. And so just the ability to continue to be excited when I look at a new issue, which Mm -hmm. I did not participate in last fall, but that's a completely new business model for our our industry. And I think we're going to continue to see that type of anarchy in a good way in the high yield market and the leverage credit markets for decades. We asked the same question of all of the successful PMs that we interviewed. And I think Mm -hmm. the surprising thing is even though these women were at the pinnacle of their careers, to me, what was so surprising is they all thought that they hadn't, like they weren't there, that there was like some end, that they were continuously changing. And I think that there's two things. Success often implies a start and finish. And in our business, there's no start and there's no finish. You you go in, quite honestly, if you're successful with a stock pitch, the pitch, the name goes into the portfolio and lo and behold, you're constantly covering it. You're getting updates, talking to management. 
So there's no start and finish within our business. And I think that does translate into our own definition of what is success. Ellen talks about also the fact that things are constantly changing. So you may have pitched a stock or have said, I looked at this stock and I don't want it to invest. But then the stock goes down 50% and you're like, I didn't like it at 100, but I actually think at 50, it's interesting. And yes, you were successful because you avoided something that went down. But then now you've got a, a lens to say, yes, that's in the past. We haven't suffered. Let's go forward. And I just, I do love that fact that this industry is constantly changing. So I think in terms of that idea of having a definition of success that has an end date and that we were completed and we were successful in finishing things, just really given the nature of what we do is not something that I think about. I like Ellen. I I love what I do. I enjoy it. I enjoy the people that I work with. And I think as long as I continue to do, I'm going to continue to stay. I love it. We think of investing as an infinite game, if you were to call it a game. And since we manage money for families, and some of the families we work with have had money for a century or two. So for them, there's no real end point. For them, the goal is to maintain and grow their wealth. And we say, when people ask, what's your investment? It's really infinite in that sense, because the goal is to make that money last. I, I couldn't see. agree more. And I think that's exactly the same attitude that we take. Ellen did touch on something, and I, I think it's a great way to, to finish up the discussion of investing. There is this idea that we have a bad image and that we are the wolves of Wall Street, that we came in and repossessed your neighbor's house. But let's think about all the good that we do for people. Let's think about the fact that we help people achieve their financial goals. We help people. We're part of that achieving their financial plan, or as you say, in creating that sustainable wealth that can be infinite. And I think that we as an industry need to do a much better job of focusing on those aspects of what we do, from it holding companies accountable for their strategy, holding them to a environmental goals, social goals, and governance standards, and that what we do is actually a force for good in this world, and it's not necessarily aligned with the image that we have. Wonderful. Ellen, any last words? No, I think that's a great note to end on. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. I learned a lot, and I hope that your book will make people more aware of something that it should be addressed, that in the investment profession, we are so diversified, yet we're not in this particular aspect. And it's a challenge, but maybe it's an opportunity when you really think about it. Usually when we come across something like that in the investment world, we could see it as an opportunity, what it can bring in terms of benefits, upside, or just better quality of, of, of invest results in the end. Here, here. Thank you for having us. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available 
at advisorinfo.sec.gov. Thank you.